So the interesting question about competitors is, how do you compete with products that are cheaper, therefore have bigger margins, therefore can do more advertising to make claims when we have lower gross margins, although still very good ones, and can't advertise? And the answer is what I said to you buried in an earlier answer, which is the consumer rules. The answer is if you do the right thing and you do it with integrity and you make yourself transparent and social media really caters to this, right? You can put cameras up on farms. You, we have farm tours and visitors and blogs and we put cows up for adoption. People can adopt a, a live Stonyfield cow and get emails from their cows. And we do all these crazy things. We have helped to convert playing fields all over America to organic because when kids roll on the grass, the skin's the biggest organ on the body. They, And by doing these things, not just talking, but doing them, we can compete with these fakes, these folks making the claims, but not really able to deliver. That's how success happens. From Entrepreneur Magazine, my name is Robert Tuckman. I self-funded, built up, and eventually sold two businesses to major players in the sports and entertainment industry. And I am fascinated by other entrepreneurial minds and what drives high-achieving people. So on this podcast, we're going to learn what they've learned and what it takes to really succeed. Gary Hirschberg is the CEO of the Hirschberg Entrepreneurship Institute and co-founder of Stonyfield Farm, the world's leading organic yogurt producer. Gary was previously on the boards of many organic and natural brands, including Annie's, Honest Tea, and Sweet Green. And currently, he continues to serve on several corporate plant-based boards. He is the author of Stirring It Up, How to Make Money and Save the World, and was awarded a 2012 Lifetime Achievement Award by the U.S. EPA. My first question for Gary was to tell me about growing up and his early influences. It's a really interesting story. Yeah. No, you're question's very insightful. First, thanks for having me. But of course, most entrepreneurs' roots go way back further than probably most of us realize. And in my case, I would say there were there were both positive and negative influences. To set the stage, Robert, I was in, uh, I grew up in New Hampshire. And let's level set this. It was the 60s, right? Like you were not even barely born then. And Close. It was the question authority uh, era. It was the beginnings of, it was Rachel Carson. It was also in my family's case, the end of an era because my father and grandfather had been shoe manufacturers and they owned factories in the state. And I, as the shoe industry collapsed, as it left the, not just New Hampshire and New England, but the United States for cheaper labor abroad, my family's company and all the companies around us, all the manufacturing that had gone on here for, you know, really since colonists got here, right? The rivers were were used for power for originally sawmilling and then eventually wool and eventually shoes and other textiles. As that happened, I, I watched kind of with horror, even though I was a young man, I, my first jobs were in the factories, the negative impact on communities that happened when business collapsed, the alcoholism, the divorces, the the drug use, the the despondency that resulted, because as you know, anyone listening knows when these industries come and go, it takes a while before the next wave comes through. And so I was, on the one hand, horrified by business, but also at the same time, there was another set of influences, which is 
you know, I was coming of age at the dawn of the environmental movement. And I used to think that the pretty colors going out the back of my family's factories into the river were beautiful until I realized the fish swimming upside down was probably not a good idea. And and even in my home, which was in the northern end of the largest city in the state, it was still rural. There were still farms. I bought, we got our eggs and chickens and holiday uh, lamb from farmers who we knew all around us, but they were all disappearing almost in an epidemic. And that was because of the urbanization, suburbanization of our region. And a little bit later in college, I went to Hampshire colleges and I was studying the causes of alpine tree line on Mount Washington in New Hampshire. But I had been a ski racer and I had grown up at a time when I was a child, when you could see the Atlantic Ocean hmm. from the summit of our largest peak. And that, that view became obscured in my later adolescence, owing to industrialization and the sort of drift of from the major urban areas of, of air pollution. And so we also had a river catch on fire. I knew that probably wasn't correct. And so all of these things were leading. And of course, I also saw business as the cause of all of that. So I was even more motivated. That's why, ironically, I went to Hampshire to go, run as far from business as possible. But I say it's ironic because it was there that I realized that I could focus on, I could study the problems of climate change and water pollution and urbanization, or I could work on the solutions and work on really entrepreneurial solutions. And that's, I got into climate change, this is early 70s, when no one was talking about it, but I, I really focused and learned about the benefits that organic agriculture can bring to climate. Agriculture is a third of humanity's footprint. And a half of agriculture is agriculture's footprint is due to chemicals, nitrogen fertilizers and pesticides. And so by organic, both eliminating the dependence on those chemicals and also demonstrating that by sequestering more carbon in the soil, it really is the solution to one of the key solutions to climate change. That's where those all those synapses, that's where all the, all the connections got made for me. It's really interesting, and and I just want to preface this because you are probably the first entrepreneur that I have interviewed from Hampshire College, and I'm very familiar with Hampshire College because my older brother, who's an incredible person, incredible artist, just a, an incredible guy, I will say, but I even remember visiting when I was younger and he's a little older than me and seeing Hampshire. And the last thing you would think of, like you said, was was business or business school. And I want to ask you, because I want to get to Hampshire, but I also want to ask you, you, you're growing up, you see your family working, creating these factories, you see the destruction of or things being shipped overseas. But then you also see the water, right? And you see what it's doing. How conflicting yeah. was that for you at that time? Yeah, well, it was terribly conflicting. And frankly, I remember my first biology class, I was in ninth grade, ecology class in ninth grade. So what, what was that, 1968? And of course, a lot of other things are happening in 1968, <laughs> yeah. right? We're, we're all sort of waking up to a questioning authority. And we were sampling and literally seeing fish upside down, not swimming. They were dead. And and I knew my family's industry, I'll say, was responsible. So I was sick to my stomach. And I, I'm a kid, right? So I, I didn't 
know what one could do about all of this. And then, and, you know, I started vaguely hearing about Rachel Carson and Silent Spring and, and putting it together. And so I chose Hampshire because as you know, its first year was 1970. I was in the class that entered in 72. So it was barely off the ground because it was a promise to really, to quote Steve Jobs, think differently. It was a promise to question authority. The, the motto of the school is to know is not enough. Non satra scary, but it was a creature of its times. We, or so we thought, as it turns out, it's better time may actually be now because we're finally as a society getting really serious about these issues. And as you say, the organic industry was not <laughs> in those days. I think organic nationally, as far as we can tell, did about $5 million in sales. It's it's $62 billion today, and it's wow. growing far faster than conventional food. I always say when we, just to jump for a moment to Stonyfield's founding, which was 1983, but it was a direct product of my Hampshire experience. I always say that we had a wonderful company when we started just no supply and no demand. I mean, no one knew what the hell we were talking about. But what we were doing at Hampshire, and as I said, I, I engaged with these professors. They were literally the founders of the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which today is the world's leading authority. And they were making predictions back then that have all come true. And again, most of those PhDs and, and geologists and geographers were studying, doing regression analyses and studying the problem. And I, I was, like I said, heart sick, right, over the problem. I, I didn't want it, it rubbed in my face anymore. I saw those farms go away. I saw those farm families. I saw that beautiful farmland become suburbs and strip malls. I was hell bent. I was sort of pathologically optimistic. And, you know, since you started on this, I'll also say, one of the consequences of my family's business collapsing was my parents, they might have anyways, but they were divorced, as most of the founders and CEOs were back then, because everything was falling apart. And there was a lot of alcoholism. My father became an alcoholic. And so I was personally feeling the pain of a failed way of thinking. And I, I would just summarize it simply this way, that I think humanity... The shoe industry with this idea that you could dump waste into the river and send it to that mythological place called Away, it's the same problem that resulted in climate change, right? We send all of our thermal waste and methane and CO2 into the atmosphere out the back of our tailpipes and, and stacks. And there's no it's a myth, right? There's no such thing as Away. It doesn't exist. And it falls out from an even more fundamental myth that I really came to grips with at Hampshire which is that we think of the earth as our subsidiary, our, a place that's there for our use and for our dumping. And that's the history of the industrial revolution, right? And the history of, of human evolution. But, but really it's all backwards because actually we're, we humans are a subsidiary of a bountiful earth. Everything we've ever done is made possible by a bountiful earth. And so in that sort of heady optimism of anti-Vietnam, let, let's work for peace, the early food co-ops, the early, first organic, all of that informed me that, you know what, I could take all that grief and pain that you were asking me about and and sort of turn it into something that worked for the good. And and I, I left Hampshire and went to work at an ecological research institute. I ultimately became its director that was working on these things, on solar and wind and organic hydroponics. And we were sort of doing everything right. We had the science. 
Bucky Fuller came to visit us. I mean, prime ministers from around the world came and because we were doing really pioneering work. The only thing we were not proving was the, the business model. We were proving the science. And so to compress an overly long story, Ronald Reagan became president in 1981. And the first thing he did was slash funding for renewable energy and organics, all the fruits of this optimistic sort of 60s, 70s revolution. And my institute, like many other nonprofits, including my partner's organic farming school in New Hampshire, became victims to this uh, slashing. Remember, they took Jimmy Carter's solar cells off the roof of the White House. And and we quickly, as a CEO of this little nonprofit, we, I and my partner who was running his little farming school, I was one of his trustees, we had to quickly come up with a new economic strategy to match our ecologic strategy because we could no longer depend on philanthropy or federal research money. And so that's, my partner had a really delicious yogurt that he made and had pioneered from, that he made from his one cow and he would feed us at our trustees meetings. And in our desperation one day, we said, let's, why don't we try to sell this stuff? And that's, that's how Stonyfield came to be. So it, it came out of that optimism. It was totally pie in the sky. I mean, our first yogurts cost $1.69 at retail in a world where everything was $1.09. Our little yogurts were 69 cents in a world where Dan and, and Yoplait were selling three for a dollar or 49 cents. And the buyers were looking at us saying, what the hell are you guys talking about? But it's delicious yogurt. I'll give it a try. And so we could get into this if you want, but it was it's a long story of how we overcame those odds. But but it really did, your first question was absolutely apt. It really did emerge out of the roots of my childhood and, and my partners, which was a, a similar story. Yeah, I'd love to get into that. I want to get into that. Before we jump there, I, I do want to talk about, you've mentioned so much about personally, and, and now it's incredible to see how your story unfolded. And just the last thing you said with sitting around that table and thinking about how, what can we do to help planet Earth, basically, and, and how Stonyfield or the idea came about. But what's incredible to me is that we're going back 50 years almost, right? And, and today, it is so normal to think about organic foods, to think about wind power, to think about some of the things you were thinking about and really understanding back then. And my question for you is, when you're thinking like that way ahead of people, how hard was that for you? I know at Hampshire, it, as we said, it's an incredible uh, school and it's just an incredible place and different way of thinking. But in the outside world at that time, how yeah. difficult was that for you? Well, we could get to the fundraising part of my journey. Uh, <laughs> I can that imagine. Was, that was immensely difficult. No one, like I said, knew what the hell we were talking about. But you're asking a slightly different question. Interestingly, Robert, because so many systems were falling apart, I mean, like I said, uh, whole communities were undergoing radical decimation with the demise of, of the industry that had driven all of New England industry, certainly rural New England. And this is long before there was and things that have subsequently come online. But everywhere you went, I mean, there were hollowed out downtowns. There were rivers that were being polluted. 
There were air, it was air pollution. You know, remember we didn't have catalytic converters on cars. We we didn't yeah. have seatbelts. You know, you know we were not. <laughs> we were a reckless, throw caution to the wind, post-war society that was just like all about. You've seen Mad Men. Was all about advancing your own personal gain and and everyone in it for themselves. And all of a sudden, all that stuff was breaking down. And so, as an example, my grandfather was a banker in Boston. So you want to talk about, he was a very conservative guy as bankers are. My father, not only did the business collapse, which also meant money that my family had, all the money my family had. I mean, my father went into virtual bankruptcy, but he divorced my his daughter. My father divorced my grandfather's daughter, became an alcoholic. You know, everything's sort of the opposite of this moral upstanding, very controlled person. And then along comes his grandkid, Thinking about all this stuff, it was like that scene in Succession where he says, I love you all, but you are not serious people. <laughs> you know, that, that, that was, I think, what my grandfather was probably thinking. But then, again, I'm jumping back and forth between the very early childhood. and, and But then I presented him with my business plan in 1984, a year into this. And he had to admit that he said, if these numbers are right, this is a pretty cool idea. This is a really conservative guy who was horrified to see all of these social infrastructure things collapsing, protests in the streets and stuff. And so I think in the wake of a lot of system failure, I think it it kind of made way for the emergence of, as you say, energy alternatives, food alternatives, questioning authority type of opportunities. And And it all goes back to that sort of core lesson I learned early on, which is really the consumer rules, right? I mean, we all think when we go shopping that the choices that are available to us on the shelf in our pharmacy or our clothing store or our food store are chosen by somebody else. But actually there's no, what I learned in business early on is that if you think the size, shape, price, color, taste, ingredients of anything are an accident, it's because those companies have done massive amounts of research, looked at us and said, that's what the consumer wants. That's what I'm going to make. And we're actually in charge of the system. And, and I'll get to this later. We need to exercise those choices to choose greener and cleaner now with urgency, with utter urgency. But in my case, I think what was happening was there was so much social upheaval. I think there was more of an openness. That, that's why Hampshire came to be. It was unendowed. It was a fragile little school starting in the under the in the shadow of all the Ivy schools and the big three, you know, Wesleyan and Amherst and Williams. And, and it was a child of the five colleges, you know, with UMass and Smith and Mount Holyoke. But it came to be because there was a constituency, there was a marketplace, both among faculty and parents and students for a place that could, like I say, institutionalize questioning authority. There's so much good stuff here. And I want to get, and we will get to the founding and starting and fundraising of, of Stonyfield. But when I think to your personal story, there's just so much, like you said, with your grandfather, who's this conservative banker, I'm sure here or being here, just trying to make a living to support right your family. Then, then your father, who sees a, an entire industry business collapse. And then obviously, personally, with alcoholism, as we know, as a disease and how it affects family. And I mean, there was so much that you were, and 
and of course the time, right? There's so much that you personally were dealing with. And then of course you go off to Hampshire College, which as we've talked about was this really unique idea way ahead of his time. My question is, where does the drive... Because I've known any entrepreneur I have interviewed on this podcast. The one thing I've noticed, there's always this drive or getting picked off the mat or probably in your case, the continual trying to get funding. Yeah, Where does that drive... How does it all come together that you have this drive? Yeah. So I would say two things. And and you know that I run these entrepreneurship institutes, the Hirschberg Entrepreneurship Institute. I run them twice a year. I have hundreds and hundreds of entrepreneurs come through. So I have the same kind of ecosystem that you have and have seen what I'm about to say, not just in my own life, but through hundreds and hundreds of other examples. My Also, you should know my wife was a writer for Inc. Magazine for many years and wrote a, okay. a column about balance. It was called Balancing Acts, about balancing family and personal with business. And she actually wrote a book called For Better or for Work, A Survival Guide for Entrepreneurs and Their Families. So this question you're asking, (laughs) yeah, it's, no, everyone needs to read it. I wish, it's a book we wish we had had because it, she interviewed hundreds of entrepreneurs to write it. But I would say two specific things in response. One, I think you put your finger on it, but I'll say it slightly differently. I think any successful entrepreneur, the hallmark of an entrepreneur is not how you do when things are going well. Because business is never, I have all these entrepreneurs who say, oh, I have so many problems. I say, yes, that's because you're in business. That's that's what business is, solving problems. So the hallmark is not how you do when it's going well. That's not an entrepreneur. The hallmark is how quickly you get back up after you've been inevitably knocked down. And in our case, if you we get into the story, you'll hear we had nine years before we made a penny. I mean, we were constantly being knocked flat on our on our butts and constantly getting back up. And to the amazement of our wives and our investors and everybody else, I mean, we had we were on life support through most of those nine years, literally on fumes. It was a period where we were burning $25,000 a week on sales of about $2.5 million. Mm. So I think that's what's really important is how quickly you get back up. The second attribute, which I can say more succinctly, is people say, well, entrepreneurs are immune to risk. They, they're more risk tolerant. I would say that isn't true. I think entrepreneurs I are highly risk averse. It's just that we have a confidence. We don't see risk where others do. And that's what happened with us. I mean, I just told you, we launched a yogurt company, an act of utterly pathological optimism, right? In the, I mean, much more expensive than was out there. Nobody knew what the hell the word organic meant. If they knew, it's because they had shopped in a dark and dirty and dingy natural food store with lots of moths flying around, or they had to chew extra. The early organic efforts were not exactly aesthetic uh, triumphs. They were triumphs of the brain, you know, growing food without chemicals. I mean, I think the singular catalyst to the success of the organic industry, aside from adopting a national organic standard, which I think was really, truly catalytic, was that we all discovered it had to taste good. And that was the beauty. That was the genius of my partner's yogurt. It was like ambrosia. It was something he, he, Samuel was a clean room engineer. He was literally like a 
technologist and and the Yiddish, uh, he grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and the Yiddish yogurt makers down there had taught him yogurt making and he had perfected it again and again and again. He was into fermentation and he grew pickles and kimchi and all this stuff. But fundamentally, the difference between us and hundreds of others who had gone before us is that his yogurt was, once you, I always said I could ship it 3,000 miles. It was less 18 inches that made all the difference because once I got it into people's mouths, they were hooked. And that's why we couldn't succeed with advertising. We had no money, but we did sampling and demoing. So I'm rattling on here, but I think those are the two keys is it's, you don't get daunted, you get bounce back up and you have a sort of a confidence that you see a way to address the risks that would otherwise intimidate other people. Psychologically though, for you personally, yeah, what is it that drove you? No, it's a, a very insight. Your questions are excellent. I can tell you exactly. I was driven by not wanting to be my father. <laughs> I was driven by wanting to, I saw what happened. I mean, it wasn't his fault, but I saw all these families fall apart when the factories closed. I saw the pollution and I was really like pendulum swing, right? From generation to generation. I was hell bent if I was going to be a part of all that. And then, as I say, I ran as far from business as I possibly could. I, I wanted to be in some other field. I drifted into the sciences. I started with spirituality, like everyone did in the 60s. Out of your time. And all that. Right. Well, no, I was in the time. But where but, it's gone as a business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But spirituality led me to sort of recognize a responsibility and a compassion. And, and that rather than being angry at all the failings that I had inherited, I could maybe do do better and be better. And time and again, when we were laid flat on our butts, when investors would treat us with incredible arrogance, one guy who was the first VC who backed uh, Sam Adams' beer, Jim Cook was a friend of mine. Jim said, hey, you should meet this guy, Gary. I went to see him. The guy sat there clipping with his feet on his desk, clipping his fingernails during mm. our meeting. I mean, and he later, five years later, called and said, wow, that was the biggest mistake I ever made. And I was it's so- a great call. You know, I love that. I love that call. Right. <laughs> but but I, have, I have a hundred of those stories, I'm right? sure. No institutional investor would give us the time of day. We were, you know, hippies, right? We were, they just figured we were like blowing in the wind and we'd be, you know, blown off in the next hurricane. And instead, ironically, the hurricane became a generation that is even stronger now with Gen Z and millennials that who wants their purchases to count, who want there to be, they want their purchases to accrue to better health and the environment, animal welfare, people, no discrimination, you know, name your cause. And I think that it was my sadness, my despair, my embarrassment, my pain from all of those failings that really lit my fire. Yeah. And I can certainly understand that it's an incredible upbringing and story. And then to where you got. And now I want to get to that point when you're sitting around that table and saying, maybe we should sell this. It kind of seemed like a last resort. And as you put it, a lot of hippies and non-business people. Is this, how did you go from hey, maybe everyone's sitting there thinking of this idea 
to really putting a plan together. Did your background with your grandfather fought like, did that part help within what you needed to do? Yeah. Well, of course, as the executive director of a nonprofit, I was responsible for fundraising, which turned out to be a pretty critical skill here. And by the way, just to slightly correct you, nobody was thinking about what we were talking, what we were doing. <laughs> like we were, I mean, Ben and Jerry's had launched, but even they weren't organic, right? Yeah. I mean, this yeah. idea, I mean, we were going up against, after World War One and World War II, when chemical companies no longer had a place to sell their chemicals, use their chemicals in warfare, that's where the chemicals in agriculture, that's where that whole, that's the whole interesting. pesticide industry. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. we were going up against a several generation trend that you must live with chemicals. Of course, 99% of humanity had grown up eating organic food. You know, George Washington, Jesus Christ, Joan of Arc, they ate organic food. It worked for them. I mean, they didn't live as long, but that was other factors. But I mean, if if I could just sort of condense this to a simple point, we had a hypothesis, which was sort of, to quote the movie, if we built it, they would come. Our hypothesis was that if if we fed cows pure organic feed and hay and did not resort to subtherapeutic antibiotics and pesticides and herbicides and focused on quality, quality, quality and cleanliness. Because what happens when the reason that so many thickeners and shortcuts are used in food, emulsifiers and plastics, I mean, there's ice creams out there that don't change shape when they melt, right? They, they're held up by all these stabilizers is because generally people businesses shortcut on the ingredients. They they cut cost. And we were using whole Jersey milk, which had a natural integrity and clean uh, facilities that were, because my partner was a clean room engineer, he knew how to do that, bacteria-free, dust-free, and then special cultures. But really, it was the richness of the milk from these cows that are also high. We now know in omega-3, I mean, the, the milk organic cows is much higher in all kinds of macro and micronutrients. Uh, by the way, organic cows live twice as long as conventional cows. That should say something about- That should tell you I'm right there about. everything right. you know. But, but, but the point is we, were, we saw the science. We thought if we can really get this package and get within a rough range of conventional pricing, we might be able to make it. And the other thing that was happening then that is also behind your question is that there was no real natural foods industry. There were there, certainly there was not a Whole Foods. There were there were three stores in Boston called Bread and Circus that eventually became Whole Foods. Yeah. That was sort of the holy grail to get in there. But in our little place in New Hampshire, there were small little natural food stores. But really, one of the secrets to our success, accidental secrets to our success, was that we launched right away in local supermarkets. I mean, our very own local supermarket in our in our town of Wilton, New Hampshire, Harwoods took us in. And that meant we had to compete side by side with Colombo, which at the time was a leading brand, and Dannon and Yoplait. And that was really good for us because it forced us to get better and better and better. Now, what we were selling to seven local independent supermarkets called Alexander's here in Southern New Hampshire. And one night, one Sunday night at the farm, because we lived there, we were milking our cows and the nephew, well, the, the senior buyer of dairy for a large chain, 35 store chain, called at the house and called my partner Samuel and said, why are you selling to my competitors and not to me? And Samuel said, well, 
you have 35 stores. I don't have enough cows to sell to you. And he said, well, get some more goddamn cows. And he slammed the phone <laughs> down. And, and that's what we did. And so, like I say, we started with this hypothesis of if we built it, they will come. We demoed, sampled the daylights out of the product. And it was sort of one spoonful, one customer at a time without money. And the other thing that was going on is, like I said to you before, we had no success with raising institutional money. So it was all individuals. And that's where my fundraising came in. By the time we sold a majority stake in the company, but not majority control, if you're interested in that story, in, yes. uh, in 2001 to Dannon, I had 297 shareholders. Now, 100 of them were employees who we had given stock, but I had 197 individuals who had put money in. Some were dairy farmers who had put $5,000 in because we couldn't pay them. And so they... we. Ask them to take stock instead. And some were people like my mother and my mother-in-law, never a good idea as venture capitalists. <laughs> but the beauty of that is that we retained our independence. We never had anyone seizing control. Samuel and I had worked our way down to about 5% ownership each after starting, obviously, wow. with, you know, 50-50. And we then earned our way back up with stock options over the years to follow. But we had no institutional investors. And that also accidentally turned out to be a good thing. Yeah, I, I would imagine that. I guess the only calls you had to take uh, for those nine years you weren't making money were from your uh, mother and mother-in-law, you know? Well, and our <laughs> when we would take the uh, check for the fruit and bring it out in the parking lot, which is a dirt parking lot, and I'd stamp on it a few times, get dirt on it, and then I'd stick it in my drawer. And then when they'd call me, I'd say, oh, you wouldn't believe what happened. It fell out of the mailbag. I have a thousand, a thousand of those payables delayed tricks and payroll contests where we got asked employees who could go the longest without cashing their check and all kinds of crazy. Amazing. More from our guests, but first a word from our sponsors. Do you have a business problem? Well, I know people who have the answer. Hi, I'm Jason Pfeiffer, editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine and host of the entrepreneur podcast, Problem Solvers. Each week on Problem Solvers, I talk to an entrepreneur about how they solved a problem in their business, like fixing their funding or marketing or product or whatever, or I talk to an expert about how to solve the most common vexing problems that you are probably facing, from leadership to lack of confidence. Our conversations are straight to the point because you don't have time for endless blah, 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 and tell me how you got started. No, you're busy. You have work to do. And Problem Solvers is here to help you solve problems. Find Problem Solvers wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. Tell me about the growth. I'd love to know what you talked about it. Nine years of not earning not making money, so to speak, and continuing on the journey. There's people who can't do that for nine months. What was... Well, they, 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 yeah, so, the, so there were three things going for us. One, we the product really was superior and word of mouth was really spreading. We were not the fastest selling item, but we were holding our own with velocities. And that meant that more and more and more supermarkets would take us on. A uh, quick, funny story. I was on the ultimate frisbee team at Hampshire, of course. And most of my, right, right. Most of my ultimate frisbee teammates had resettled in Cambridge and we'd been trying to get in a bread and circus in Cambridge for a year and a half in 1984. And one Sunday, my frisbee team came up to the farm to celebrate my birthday, my 30th birthday. And I 
I blew out the candles and I said, listen, if you want to give me a really good birthday present, go to Bread and Circus and ask for our yogurt. That was a Sunday. On Wednesday, the buyer from Bread and Circus is after a year and a half of knocking on her door, called and said, I don't know what's going on, but demand has gone through the roof. So get it in here. And a week later, our sales were among the lead yogurts. And we're now, have been ever since. We're, we're, I think Stonyfield is 80% of organic yogurt sales in the US. So again, wow. it was enough to keep going. That was one thing. The second is we had individuals who, similar to my odyssey, were looking for alternative investment, right? They didn't want to support the war machine. They didn't want to support nuclear energy, whatever it was. And they had advisors. And we had many of these early socially responsible investors who saw this clean company committed to this crazy idea called organic. And so that was helpful in helping me recruit and enlist investors. And then the third is, as you say, we had steady growth. Now, the nine years, it took us nine. We got to break even at 10.25 million in annual sales. Hmm. So it was nine years to get to just 10 million in sales. That was uh, 1992. By 1999, we were at 90 million in sales. And by 2010, we were at 400 million in sales. So that's a sense of the trajectory. It's incredible. Oh, yeah. It's incredible. But just obviously, from all the effort, the work, understanding that the product had to be good, it couldn't just be organic. It reminds me we had the founder of Allbirds, the the, the shoot. Oh, I know. Yes. He's he's a good, good friend. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, Tim was saying that it wasn't that the shoe was had to be made from all these kind of organic materials and it was, it still had to be a good shoe or yeah. no one's. Yeah, I, I, farm, I have a farm, organic farm in New Zealand. So Tim and I have become very close friends and I agree. And that's exactly right. The product had to be incredible. The other thing I will say is as we got bigger, the corollary of growth was that we got more efficient, right? We got our gross margins improved and that became a better and better and better story. We also were constantly reinvesting. I mean, we started with a 600 square foot, you know, yogurt room. When we finally moved off the farm to Londonderry, our current site, it was 21,000 feet. Today it's 550,000 feet. It's almost 10 acres under roof. And so we were never in the business of taking profits out. We're always in the business of reinvesting in more automation and more more efficiency, safety, health, cleanliness, and so on. And look, the other thing that was going on is that we were able to convince more and more farmers that this is not just a good thing for them to do, but this is the most profitable thing they could be doing. I mean, if there's a singular success in Stonyfield's history, if I was forced to say, What's the thing you're most proud of? It's that we proved, well, I'd say it's two things. One, that we proved that organics really works. Like I said, I started with a hypothesis. It really works. Farmers are much more profitable. It's win, 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 win commerce, right? We, everybody wins. The cows live twice as long. The farmers make more money. The topsoil, future generations, it's national security, right? You're less dependent on Kuwaiti oil for fertilizer, on and on. It goes, so many benefits, not to mention the health benefits of not having, we now know pesticides are linked to autism and all manner of cancer. I mean, so we proved a model and then it became the farmers talking to other farmers saying, hey, you really should sell to these guys. And the corollary of that is we had an emerging consumer 
out there who understood this stuff. And so our packaging, it wasn't quite Dr. Bronner's with fine print, but we would talk about things like how our cows ate, uh, why, what really goes on with organic farming. I mean, we used our lids, the yogurt tops, to promote causes, yeah. even campaign finance reform. And, and so we had people responding, investors responding, consumers responding to a, it wasn't just talk, it was the actions of social and environmental responsibility. Yeah, no, we we were Stonyfield family, thanks to my sister, because I can recall in the late 80s and, and early 90s, eating a lot of Stonyfield, especially as someone who loves yogurt. And I want to ask you, what was that like? You were there, you put this time, this effort in really to not only build a, a product and a company, but really an industry and and get people to believe in it. What was it like for you personally? How'd you feel when you started to see competitors popping up? <laughs> well, I didn't like it, of course. At first, we had a little company called Brown Cow Yogurt that had started in Ithaca, New York, who was trying to beat their way into New England. And we were forced by the buyer. He said, look, I'll take one of you, whichever and then he laid out his list of extortive demands. Uh, I heard about those from some of the, back in the day, my, my past, some of those buyers and retailers, especially in the New England area, were asking not for a past. lot. <laughs> I'll tell you, it's not just the past, but I'll leave that aside. Like I say, I consult for hundreds and hundreds of entrepreneurs now. But we anyways, we met them, those that price. We knocked them back. Then we went to New York and we beat them. And then... Eventually, we bought them, and we we now own Brown Cow. But all kidding aside, in the big picture, it's I nowadays I really, especially because we're winning, I suppose. But I I love seeing all this organic entrepreneurship because there's always another niche, right? And I mean, in my day, yogurt was small cups and large cups. Today, it's drinkable, spoonable, wearable. It's it's uh, pouches, it's tubes, it's and that's all exciting. I will say a corollary of your question though is it's very interesting for me to see a lot of the non-organic brands trying to act as if they aren't organic there's one brand i won't name its name its original slogan was nothing but good well it turns out they're not nothing but good in fact they pay farmers half of what we pay for their milk price and most of those farmers are really they're like indentured slaves. Like they don't have anywhere else to go because they're not organic, but they're forced to suffer with these very, very low prices. There's been words like natural use, which are not, organic is a legally defined term, right? It has real regulations, real stipulations, real penalties as a real there, there. The word natural means nothing. Then along comes this word sustainable. Again, nice word, not legislated. And now the current word du jour is regenerative, which again, doesn't mean anything. I mean, Frito-Lay is out there advertising their, their Pepsi's now advertising their Frito-Lay, Lay's potato chips as being regenerative. Well, there's enormous amounts of herbicides and pesticides being used in a lot of operations that call themselves regenerative. So, so the interesting question about competitors is, how do you compete with products that are cheaper, therefore have bigger margins, therefore can do more advertising to make claims. When we have lower gross margins, although still very good ones, and can't advertise. And the answer is what I said to you buried in an earlier answer, which is 
it's the con- the consumer rules. The answer is if you if you do the right thing and you do it with integrity, and you make yourself transparent, and social media really caters to this, right? You can put cameras up on farms. You, we have farm tours and visitors and blogs, and we put cows up for adoption. People can adopt a, a live Stonyfield cow and get emails from their cows. And we do all these crazy things. We we have helped to convert playing fields all over America to organic because when kids roll on the grass, the skin's the biggest organ on the body. They And by doing these things, not just talking, but doing them, we can compete with these fakes, these folks making the claims, but not really able to deliver. I love that. I want to bring up the point, and I know this, you ended up selling, I believe, and you can run me through the story, a portion of the business to a major company, and you can talk about that and then some more. And tell me how that came about, what made you decide to do it, and then I know you obviously had stipulations if you were yeah. going to do it. Yeah. Well, so we were innovating all these crazy things, right? Using the lids for messaging, putting cows up for adoption, uh, introducing consumers at commuters, train stations across the country by thanking them for taking the train, which was a climate action, right? And giving them a yogurt. And, and so we were totally bewildering to all these large companies but they could not ignore our growth. And by 1998, we were at about 4% of US yogurt, multi-billion dollar sector and so forth. So so we were getting knocks on the door. And nowadays, this is de rigueur, right? You, this is table stakes. Yeah. I mean, large strategics go shopping because they don't organically, if you forgive the pun, innovate. <laughs> they, they, they innovate through acquisition. But I, like I said, I had 297 shareholders and my mother-in-law was the biggest of them. And like I said, I had a kind of a moral obligation to get these people an exit. I mean, we had people who had invested money they could not have afforded to lose and whose kids were now, weren't born when they invested, now we're getting orthodontics or college bills. And so we had to provide an exit for them. And when we finally decided to shop around. We thought of going public, which Ben and Jerry's had done. They were good friends. But then you saw the Ben and Jerry's hostile takeover that led to their being acquired by Unilever. Actually, Unilever was not the hostile. Unilever was the savior in that case. There was another company called Dryers that tried to Mm. do a hostile takeover. But we didn't like that scenario. So we came up with a deal that was unlikely to succeed, but we figured, what the heck? And which was that we would sell, we would provide an exit to all of our minority shareholders, which represented by then around 75% of the company because we had earned back. And we would sell 75% of the company, but we wanted, I wanted to stay in control. So we wanted to remain in control with 25%. And we talked to lots of companies and they would laugh and they'd say, oh, that's, that's really funny, but be serious. And I said, I am serious. And so most of them went away, but Danan, to their credit, and the credit of their then CEO and chairman, they said yes. And they did a deal with us, which left us with 60% voting control, which I kept for as long as I was CEO. And then eventually, with I became the head of organic for Danan, as well as continuing to lead Stonyfield. We start launched a lot of companies in Europe and around the world. And eventually we came up with the idea of buying White Wave Foods, which is 
Silk and Horizon and a bunch of other little brands. So delicious. But then the SEC under Trump said uh, that we couldn't combine Horizon and Stonyfield under one roof. So they forced Danone to sell it. And that's how we became owned by Lactalis, which is a large private company. And Lactalis has engaged me to continue as their senior advisor and sort of organic tip of the spear. So it's continued to be a healthy relationship in which they've reinvested and they've left us alone and they've really embraced what we're doing. And in fact, their chairman announced three years ago that they wanted to be the largest organic dairy player in the world. So that little dream back in 1983 has now got multi-billion dollars of influence. It's really incredible. And in the little time we have left, I, I want to ask you, forgive the word, pioneer within this industry and within really a, I look at it as a complete revolution for what's happened and growing up from an 80s kid and seeing to where I am today and what I'm eating and how different we always joke with my friends of TV dinners and, you know, things where yeah. like, it's just, it's incredible the the changes that we've that have come about a lot to do with your drive your initiatives and a lot of people like you who who really stuck with it and my thought is in terms of today's world where there's still question marks people questioning things for you and for organic foods and better health, what still has not been done and what needs to really take place? Yeah, well, I'll be succinct and to the point. So the first thing, let's just be clear, that cheap food is neither. Mostly it's not food. Mostly it's a lot of things that are not good for you. There's new discoveries every day that something that was thought to be safe or some lobbyist convinced policymakers was safe is no longer safe. You see what's going on with PFAS chemicals this summer right now, right? Thought to be safe, now not. Glyphosate, thought to be safe, but now known by the World Health Organization to be a probable carcinogen. So, and it's not cheap because even though the pri- it may be cheap at the cash register, there are costs down the line that you're not paying for. Farmer decline, a loss of, of uh, environmental integrity, your health, the most expensive form of healthcare is getting sick, right? The cheapest is prevention. So I would say what isn't being done is, I mean, the good news is we've got a $62 billion industry. The bad news is that we're still about 6% organic of food. And so what needs to happen is we need to get to a greater scale, which means we need more and more consumers to be really scrutinizing, challenging, questioning labels. And we, as an organic sector, need to better and better and better tell our story. But mainly, uh, we need to do it by showing what we're doing. And the problem is when you're facing things like climate change or toxification or the cancer epidemic or water and species biodiversity problems, we don't have as much time as we used to have. This was a hypothesis. And as I said, in 1983, now it's a certainty. But the other certainty is we've proven that organic is the solution to most or many of these problems. And so we've just got to expedite and get to scale 10, 15, 20, 30, 50 percent. 
And if you just, I'll leave you with this, Robert, because I've got to run to a call and I know you do too. But everyone used to say, well, organic isn't proven. Uh, it's a great idea. Actually, it's not proven. Scientifically, it's proven. I could spend an hour with you walking through all the scientific proof. It's actually the chemicals that are not proven. And it's time for us to get serious as a society, particularly as parents, if we want to protect those to come and the very young who are more vulnerable than we adults, then we got to get really serious about this stuff. We've got to increase our share dramatically. Fortunately, places like Walmart and Costco and Target are on board, but it's it's ultimately going to be driven by consumers, informed, conscientious consumers. Gary, thank you so much for joining How Success Happens. It's really been fascinating. I usually, we do uh, 30 minutes to 35 minutes podcasts and we're at an hour and I could probably still talk to you for another hour. It's quite fascinating, your story. And thankfully, back, you guys were sitting around that table years ago and and thankfully you kept that drive going. And you Well, know, thanks. And I want to just quickly underscore what you said and I'll let you go. It's been a whole generation of amazing entrepreneurs. You look at Annie's and Amy's and all these other wonderful brands. So thank you for noting that it's no one of us. It's a lot of us. And it's very exciting. So yeah, thanks. I think we had, I had one of the, I think you're part of it or invested, uh, Sweetgreen, one of the founders. Oh, sure. On yeah, the, yeah, yeah. I was on that board forever. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, there's a lot more, which is great. Very different from when you started Stonyfield. So Gary, thank you again. Great day. All right. Appreciate the you. conversation. Take care. Say hi to your brother. Okay. Bye. And that's our episode. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to How Success Happens wherever you get your podcasts. We come out with a new episode every Wednesday morning, and you don't want to miss it. And if you like to share, please feel free to pass along the show to an entrepreneur friend who could use a boost, and I could always use the subscribers. And do you have ideas for guests? I always love to hear about great entrepreneurs. If you know anyone, shoot me an email at hsh at entrepreneur.com or on Twitter at Robert Tuckman, that's R-O-B-E-R-T-T-U-C-H-M-A-N, or even send me a message on LinkedIn. How Success Happens is a production of Entrepreneur Media. Be sure to visit entrepreneur.com for insight on building your business, or even better yet, subscribe to our magazine. No joke, I found my first job after reading about a company in Entrepreneur Magazine back in the 1990s. It's always been my absolute favorite magazine for entrepreneurs. Thanks for listening and spending some time with me today. Until next time, my name is Robert Tuckman, just a fellow entrepreneur and your host. See you soon.